Timothy Keller talks about doing a series of talks one year on the seven deadly sins, which I had to look up because I haven't memorized them. Uh, anger, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony, the seven deadly sins. He was doing men's breakfasts, and he chose that he would uh, address one of those deadly sins on each of the seven breakfasts during the year. And uh, his wife said to him right at the beginning, you're going to have the worst attendance when you talk about greed. And she was right. It ended up that even for things like lust and anger and pride, the men came out, but for greed, a very low attendance. Nobody thinks that they're greedy, do they? I think that my experience in the pastoral ministry is not unlike uh, Timothy Keller's. Uh, I can only think, as I pondered it this week, I can only think of one time in all my ministry life that there was uh, greed was a kind of a front burner issue. It was in another church, and I was uh, meeting with the nominating committee, and we were discerning the names that were put forward for deacons in the church. And, and uh, we would go through the list of qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And, and when we came to one of the names, one of the nominating committee members said, uh, I have a bit of a problem with that name. And I said, well, what's the problem? And they said, he's a lover of money. And everyone seemed to concur with that. His name was not brought forward. You know, it seems like all kinds of other vices and problems that we face in our lives, we can say, yeah, you're right, guilty, as charged. But when it comes to greed, we seem to either just shove it off somehow, or we seem to excuse ourselves, or we seem to even be blind to what really should sit squarely upon us. The man that we read, we read of in this scripture reading this morning in Mark chapter 10 is known as the rich young ruler. He is known as this because in Matthew's account, he's identified as a young man. And the word that's used, one lexicon said, between the ages of 24 and 40. So there you go. That's what young is. I'm kind of glad about that. I'm not too much older than young. And uh, so, and then Luke's account says that this man was a ruler, likely of the synagogue, and all three Synoptic Gospels say that he had great wealth. So we get the word rich, young, ruler. That's who he was. And I think there's four reasons why we need to listen to this text and probably receive it squarely on the jaw because it's got something to teach us that's very, very, very critical for us. First of all, I believe that we can identify with the rich, young, ruler because I believe that according to world standards of wealth, we are all in this room wealthy people, okay? Right now, as we sit, 85% of the world's total global assets are in the hands of 10% of the adults in this world. 85% in the hands of 10%. If you break it down even further, 1% of the richest people on earth have 40% of the planet's wealth, okay? 1%. That is a 99% kind of duking it out over, over the other 60%. And this is all the while when 800 million people go to bed hungry every night. There is a disparity between rich and poor, and friends, you cannot hide it. You're on the rich side of the disparity. There are the haves and there are the have-nots, and we are the haves on this earth, okay? 
And so we have to identify with this fellow because of it. There's such a, there's such a comparison thing that we do. Somehow we, we compare ourselves with our neighbor instead of with the world, which is so different than our neighborhoods. We do that even when we think about giving. At the end of the year, we, we're doing our tax returns, and, and we, we look at our, oh, wow, I gave, a, gave quite a bit to charitable organizations this year. Revenue Canada says that the religious people in Canada give just over $1,000 to charitable organizations and that the non-religious people give about just over $300 a year. And we look at those statistics and we say, hey, we're not doing so bad. But you see, the thing is, well, who said we were to, to compare ourselves with whatever the median is in Canada when we have been blessed by so much and we understand the God of grace? And so the first reason is because we're rich. Second reason why I think we should identify with this fella is because we are all influenced by the culture we live in. It is impossible to be in, to be in this individualistic, materialistic, and consumeristic world without being very heavily influenced by it, blinding us to the idolatry of money by the want for more and the sense of entitlement all the while that on this global village we have, there are poor people that have so much less. So it just behooves us to look at this text because there's no way of living in our culture without having materialism have a tug on our hearts. Thirdly, there's another reason, and that is because actually this guy that we're, we read about was a really good guy. This man that we read about was a, a, a model citizen in the Judaic world. He was a, a ruler in the synagogue. He was a man that kept the Old Testament law. He was already tithing 10% when Jesus spoke with him. And, uh, and he was a, a man that kept the law. And so... Uh, an exemplary character, a devout man. And so we're trying to be good too. So we should identify with him on that level. And then finally, I think, and most importantly, we should identify with him because he stumbled over two things that you and I can stumble over. Even after we've learned it, we go back and stumble over it again and again. And so we stumble over the same two things that he did. One is his understanding of how to live in this world, and the other is his understanding of how to prepare for the next world. We don't get that right often. One of the authors I read, a man by the name of Dan Villa Jr., has written that the rich young ruler accumulated possessions to secure his life in this world, and he accumulated obedience to the commandments to secure his life in the world to come. And it sounds kind of odd to think that way, uh, that, that he's accumulating obedience to secure his, his life in the world to come, but that's exactly the way so many people think. And the alignment that needed to take place in his life, the realignment that needed to take place in his life, is a realignment that also has to take place in our lives. And so the encounter that we read of, Jesus is, is trying to realign his thinking with the kingdom so that neither his possessions or his obedience would be a stumbling block to him entering the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that not only your possessions could be a stumbling block to you, but your very obedience to try and live an upright life could be actually a stumbling block to you entering the kingdom, depending on how you view that effort of obedience. And so let's take a look at uh, our, our message this morning. You'll notice in your insert, that green piece of paper, there are a few points I'd like to make about this realignment factor that has to take place in our lives. What kind of place is the kingdom of God? 
What kind of place is heaven that requires a change in our approach to it? And the first thing we need to see is it's a place where doing good will never do enough good. That's the kind of place that we're talking about. This man had many good deeds, but nothing, nothing he, he did could be good enough. Verse 17, we, we read about how this man comes and he kneels before Jesus. We have nothing in the text that would suggest that he's not a sincere man in this point. Matthew's account tells us a little bit more about the question that he asks Jesus in Mark 10, 10 verse 2, um, or sorry, Mark 10, 17. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew's account gives us one extra word. He says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's calling Jesus good, and he's saying, what good thing must he do? And Jesus rightly then responds with his challenging his, his idea of goodness. He says, why do you call me good? You know that only God is good. You see, he's challenging his view of goodness. What's good enough for the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is challenging this man's view that many people have. Why he called Jesus good? He wasn't objecting to being called good. Jesus is good because he is God. He is objecting to why this man decided to call him good. Because this man, you see, had a goodness idea or, or image that was kind of like God graded on the curve. And as long as you're better than the next person, or as long as you're not as bad as the other person, then you're going to make it. But God did not have that, does not have that view of goodness, of course. And so, if the question would have been posed to any other rabbi or Jewish leader in the time, they would have had a prescription for this man. They would have told him exactly what he needed to be to, to do good, to be good, to have eternal life. They would have told him, join our group. Join the Pharisees, join the Sadducees, join the Zealots, join whatever group you're part of, because we have it right. They would have added to the law some of the extra rules that they had in order to guarantee that you would be part of heaven and eternal life. And so... This man, though, was surprised, perhaps, at Jesus' response. I remember one time in a former church in, in Thunder Bay, uh, we had a man who fixed the photocopier, and whenever he would come, uh, we had a good discussion. He was a Muslim man, and so one day I asked him, what are you trusting in? What do you think you have to do to have heaven, to get to heaven? He didn't, didn't, didn't waste a beat. He said, I need to live according to the Quran." And you see, that is the way that many world religions will respond. In order for me to have eternal life, I need to live according to the code. And the code is described in various religious books around the world. Christians look to the Bible. And, and this even can be misunderstood into thinking that if I just live according to the Bible, I will get eternal life. There's a list of do's, there's a list, a list of don'ts. Do enough good, avoid enough don'ts, and you'll get to heaven. But that was not what Jesus thought. And so his answer, Jesus' answer to the man, probably made him a little bit happy, but also surprised him. Happy because he thought, gee, I've, I've been doing this. But surprised because he expected other things to be added, which he didn't get until later on. So what did Jesus say? He, he actually quoted the Ten Commandments, six of them. Well, five of them literally, and one of them in a paraphrased form. <clears throat> For example, Jesus says, do not murder. That's number six. Do not commit adultery, number seven. Do not steal, number eight. Do not give false testimony, number nine. 
do not defraud, which is a kind of a version of do not covet, number 10. And then he goes back to number 5, and he says, and honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you, and that's number 5. It's interesting that the six commandments that Jesus quoted are all the commandments that relate to how we relate to each other. And the first four that Jesus did not quote have to do with how we relate to God. <clears throat> and so when this man heard this response, uh, he, he probably reasoned in his mind like this. Well, I've never killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I've never been charged with this crime of stealing. I've never lied under oath, and I've been a good son to my parents. I'm a good citizen. I must be worthy of eternal life. You see, his understanding of, of goodness was human terms, self-righteousness, we would call it. He did not understand that only God was good. And so instead of being aware of his sin, he was aware of only his own goodness in his own mere human terms. In other words, he was not able to see what he needed God to do for him because he was obsessed with what he needed to do for God. And that is the reason why so many people will not be in heaven one day. They are obsessed with what they think they need to do for God instead of being humble enough to see what God has to do for you or you will not make it. And so... He needed a realignment in the doing realm. Secondly, he needed a realignment in the being realm. Because heaven is a place and eternal life is a place where being good will never be good enough. It sounds so similar to the first one, but it's a little different. Martin Luther has quoted to have said that people are not sinners because they sin. <clears throat> they're, they're, they sin because they're sinners. And the difference is critical you see, one has to do with the doing and one has to do with the being. Forgiveness and eternal life are out of reach of our, of our abilities as humans. We cannot attain eternal life. Why? Not simply because we do sins, which is true, we do sins. And it disqualifies us, no question. But primarily and fundamentally, we're disqualified and it's out of our reach because we are sinners. It's who we are. We're rebels at heart. We're defiant at heart. And this is where the gospel is offensive to many people in the world because a lot of people think that they're good people. This man would have been offended if Jesus would have said, you're a rebel at heart and you're a sinner. He would have said, no, I have lived according to the law since I was a boy. <clears throat> of course, according to his interpretation. Many people today, I know I speak to, they say, I'm not a bad person. Or else they'll say, I'm not as bad as that person, and therefore I must be above the grade, and so on the curve I look pretty good. And so they're missing the point. Even the disciples, I think, were surprised because according to the disciples, Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples, this man was a good man. He, he was a ruler in the synagogue. He lived according to the law. He gave 10%. He never, you know, he was, he was a good man. Impeccable moral order. And, 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 of course, he even had deep pockets. I mean, it would be good to have this guy on your team, Jesus. Don't you want to go back and get that guy to come back to us? They didn't understand. 
And they didn't understand because of the third reason which is in our list, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is a place where, where good, where, where lacking one thing is enough to disqualify you from everything. Lacking just one thing. If it were not for Jesus doing some deep and invasive soul surgery on the spot through his questioning, the malignant cancerous sin that was in this man's heart might never have been discovered. He might always have been seen as a wonderful, good, church-going man and never understood his own poverty of spirit. You see, the Lord, it says in the Bible, the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus looked at this man, and though from the disciples' perspective and all the other Jewish leaders, this man was a fine man and ready as a candidate for the kingdom, Jesus looked at him and saw something absolutely, desperately wicked that disqualified him. And all it takes, my friends, is one thing to disqualify us from the kingdom. And so Jesus addresses this one thing. And he says to him, One thing you lack. I imagine in my mind, verse 21, I imagine in my mind that when Jesus said, One thing you lack, the man's eyes brightened up. You see, he had just been through the checklist mentality. He had the, his own report card out, and he was checking. I didn't murder, didn't do that, didn't do that. I'm, I'm, and then Jesus says, the rabbi says, just one thing more. I'm so close. I'm so close. And then Jesus says, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Come follow me. And we read in the text that the man's countenance went down. Darkness invaded him. And he walked slowly away in sadness. Do you ever ask why? We don't know why precisely. Maybe Jesus thought, this is my last time I'll see this man on earth. You ever had that experience? Talking to someone, you think, this is the last time I'm going to see this person. Or maybe Jesus just knew enough about this man that he didn't think a two-by-four would do. He used a two-by-six. And so he said something so stark to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You see, the kingdom of heaven, friends, is, is the kind of place where just one thing is enough to disqualify a soul from entrance. The human heart is a corrupt and idol-making factory. That's why the proverb says in 423, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Think of how you would have responded to Jesus on that day. If Jesus were to walk into your room into your home this week and to say to you, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me and you will have treasures in heaven. And besides that, I'm promising you that you're going to receive a hundredfold even on this earth. How many of us would respond like that? I think it was easier when we were younger. I know I think about when I was in my early 20s and... and uh, I didn't have many possessions, and what I did possess didn't possess me that much. <laughs> I could walk away from it easily. But then over the years, things happen to us, don't they? Over the years, the, the, the roots down in our feet get, get deeper into the things that we have, and the money, and, and the security, and we think about retirement, and everybody around us is telling us what we ought to do and have. 
And pretty soon you find that those, those roots down deep are actually also around your heart. Your heart is not free to follow Jesus like you maybe were when you were younger. This, this man is young enough, and yet still at this point has, has no freedom. I don't believe that um, Jesus is teaching here that we all need to literally sell everything and give to the poor and go and somehow figure out what life looks like after that. I, I think that the principle is that Jesus is teaching us over and over again that, that if that's what it takes, then do it. And have at, your, at his disposal anything that, that you have. Just let it be his. Jesus has been teaching this, hasn't it? In the last few weeks, we've been looking at it. He one time uses hyperbole, and he says, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, get rid of it. It's better to have one eye in this world and enter the kingdom of heaven. Or if your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, chop it off. It's better to have less limbs in this world and enter kingdom of heaven. Whatever it takes, you do it. And if your riches on earth cause you to stumble, sell them all and give them to the poor because it's better to have riches in heaven than anything else on earth. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, Jesus said, and forfeits his own soul? That's the lesson here, friends. Jesus, with his laser vision, saw through to this man's heart. He knew the one thing he lacked. And that's all it takes, friends, for you or I. Jesus is not an unreasonable God. He just says, I have to be first. Because the very first commandment is, you have no other gods before me. And money was this man's God. What's your God? Jesus has to be number one. See, this is where many people will get off track and they'll misunderstand the gospel and they'll say, so the gospel is not a gospel of free grace. The gospel is something that costs. It'll cost you everything. And the answer I want to say is yes and no. The answer is in terms of the eternal salvation that you will have one day, if you ever have it at all, it's only going to be because on the cross, Jesus paid the full price. So the answer is no. It is absolutely a gospel of grace. But the message of the Bible is, is such that those who truly come to him must, as he said, deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus, or you're not worthy of him. The price has been paid by Jesus in full. The candidates must exemplify the same values. Followers of Jesus cannot just enjoy cheap grace. I meant to bring my copy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. Um, he says this. He says that we have made a God out of the doctrine of free grace. We have overinterpreted the doctrine of free grace. And so a half-truth presented as a whole truth is an untruth. And you can exalt one doctrine to the neglect of something. There is a cost to discipleship. It has nothing to do with the cost of your salvation. And so he distinguishes between cheap grace and costly grace. And he says that cheap grace is the kind of grace that justifies sin, but not the sinner. So we, we say, well, I can sin. God's forgiven me. I, I'm, I'm in. I prayed the prayer or whatever. And so cheap grace 
justifies sin but not the sinner. You see, the point is that there's no such thing really as cheap grace. On the cross, it cost God's son his life. And if you and I are going to be truly followers of Jesus Christ, possessors of eternal life and not just professors of Christ, then we have to take up our cross and follow him, that's all. There can be no other gods before him. So as I was preparing this message, I had to keep on asking myself, one thing you lack, what is the thing that I lack? What is it that, that keeps on gripping my heart? What is the one thing that most hinders me from following Jesus with my whole heart? What would it be for you? How do we possibly dislodge the, the idols of our hearts in our materialistic age especially? How do we get free from this? You know what the answer is? Same answer the disciples came up with. You can't. It's impossible. That's the point. See, that's the point of this message. Is the point is it, it is impossible. You can't. You will constantly be wrestling with the gods of this age and wrestling and fighting the good fight of the faith to keep Jesus as Lord. And that leads us to our fourth point where the impossible becomes possible with God. Notice that Jesus does not run after this man to lower the standards. And the disciples are surprised because Jesus says to them, then he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, there was not just one sad man in this scripture. There's another sad man. It's Jesus. He is so sad because he is watching this man walk away and he has all of his worldly goods intact and none of his joy. How hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. The disciples are amazed, but they're even more amazed what he says next. He says, It is easier, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is the only time in all the Gospels when, in all the Mark's Gospel, when Jesus calls his disciples children. I think it's because Jesus had just had children on his lap. And, and he's connecting these two dots. Your children too. Have that kind of faith. He says in verse 15, right? And so, have this kind of faith in me. Hyperbole is used here. I imagine some of you have heard about this place that was in the Jerusalem wall that was called the Eye of the Needle and the camels had to duck and get underneath there and all that. That's not even... I don't even know that it exists. It seems to be mythology, actually. This is just plain hyperbole, like pluck your eye out or chop your hand off. This is plain hyperbole. What is it? The camel was the largest animal in Palestine, and the eye of a needle was the smallest imaginable thing that they could think of. So what is it? How do we get into heaven? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You see, what you do is you string out the camel a thousand miles long, and you... No! This has nothing to do with this hyperbole. There's nothing to do with that. It is... What is it hard? No, it's not just hard. It's impossible. It's impossible for any of us to merit eternal life. It's impossible. Because only God is good. So what does he say is impossible? Because with God, all things are possible. That's, with God, all things are possible. And so Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, the, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride, and the gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. You who are despairing today, 
You who are despairing today, listen, hear the gospel of grace that Jesus paid it all. That there's nothing you can do good enough. You cannot be good enough. And even one thing is enough to disqualify. Believe and hear the gospel of grace and then come to him empty and just say, Lord, everything I have is yours. That's the gospel of grace. It's impossible with humans. We can't be good enough but it is possible with God because Jesus Christ took your sin. He took your sin. He paid for it on the cross. Do you believe that? The final thing that we see in this realignment is number five is that in verses 28 to 31, Peter speaks up and he says, Master, we've left everything to follow you. And you know what? It was sort of true, wasn't it? Remember Mark chapter 1 and verse 18? They left their nets and they followed Jesus. The thing that's interesting is, though, that we know, we've been studying it, that Peter owned a boat after that left everything and followed him because it says a couple times that Jesus got in that boat and preached in it, you know. And we know that in Capernaum, it was Peter's home that Jesus visited, you know. It's kind of interesting. We left everything to follow. He was saying, don't you want a home and a boat? And, but the fact is that Jesus doesn't confront it. Why? Because I think that he had a, a, a good understanding of the fact that his possessions, that everything he had, Jesus knew that everything Peter owned was available to Jesus. And not just available in theoretical terms, like we might say, well, everything I own belongs to God. I mean, practically, everything was available. And Jesus, or Peter's life, was really one of those kinds of lives. You want my boat? Here's my boat. You want to come over to my place? No problem. Bring the whole church over. That's fine. That's what Peter was like. I think Jesus didn't rebuke Peter because Peter had it right. For a change, maybe, eh? In this instance. Unlike the rich young ruler. And so Jesus goes on and he says that the kingdom attitude about money and possessions that's found here is that no one who's left anything at all for him and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, there'll be persecutions too, but oh, the good far outweighs the bad. And how many times you can hear testimonies of people that have left everything to follow Jesus and God gives a mother, a brother, a sister, God gives a home, God gives a family. That's what the body of Christ is meant to be all about. Pat and I tasted just a little bit of this. I remember when we were going from Thunder Bay to Bolivia, and it was kind of cool just to, to give some things away and sell some things and, and just declutter and, and go. God asks us to carry that attitude. And here's the key. This is the key. To the degree that you and I are obsessed with and stressing over that which we are losing to follow Jesus, we don't understand what we are gaining. Okay? To the degree that we obsess over that, all that we are losing to follow Christ, to that same degree, you and I have not captured this kingdom principle of all that you are gaining. Verses 28 to 31. All that you are gaining when you come to know Jesus. hundred times more. hundred times. Plus eternal life to come. So this man was miserable. 
What he had were the things that the world coveted. What he had was youth and wealth and influence and power and position, and the world coveted it, but what he lacked was everything that was valued in heaven. He didn't have those things. He lacked freedom from the chains of his own sinful heart that coveted things and was greedy. He lacked the humility before God to receive because he thought he could be good enough on his own. He lacked compassion for the poor. He lacked joy in the journey of, of living for other reasons than himself. This rich man was rich in things of the earth and poor in heaven. The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy was fascinated with the Sermon on the Mount. And Philip Yancey in his book Soul Survivor writes about Tolstoy. He says, I feel sad every time I read Tolstoy. The x-ray vision into the human heart that made him a great novelist also made him a tortured person. Like a spawning salmon, he tried to swim upstream all of his life, in the end, in the end collapsing in moral exhaustion. As a child, he believed in a magical green stick on which words were carved that would destroy all evil in the hearts of men and bring them good. He never found that green stick, never truly came to terms with his own fallenness of humanity, including himself. He thought that in his own will, it would be sufficient to chase away the evil from his heart, but it failed him. He gave most of what he owned away, but his wife wrote in her diary later on, there is so little genuine warmth about him his kindness does not come from his heart, but from his principles. What a sad commentary of a human life that tried to be good enough for God and was miserable in the process and died Christless. I read as well recently about the, one of the first Arctic expeditions, the Franklin Expedition in 1845, incredible preparations for this. The explorers made room on their ships for this huge library. Can you imagine taking a ship to the Arctic and you've got this huge library on board waiting the ship down? There was a, a hand organ. There was china place settings. There was cut glass wine goblets. There was sterling silver flatware in, instead of the additional coal that they would have maybe saved their lives ornate silver flatware with the officers' initials and family crests engraved on them. And later on, when search parties found the clumps of dead bodies across the Arctic from leaving the ship to, tro to go and try to find some rescue, when they found the clumps of dead bodies, one skeleton wore his fine blue cloth uniform edged with silk braid, hardly a match for the bitter cold of the Arctic. Another man a skeleton was found, and in his pockets were, were place settings of silver flatware. Can you imagine? Imagine what must have been thinking these men. One cannot imagine that any of these sailor adventurers would have said as they neared death on the frozen landscape, I wish I'd have brought more of those place settings. How foolish. And yet our hanging on to things that are ultimately useless for eternal life is no less foolish. You let these things get a hold of your heart and they will be your eternal damnation. This message is not an easy one to digest. I'm going to ask the worship team to come.
And I'm going to ask that we respond to the message this morning just with an open heart, just in bringing your own heart back to God and saying, God, you know, you know the things I struggle with. It's impossible, but Lord, with you all things are possible. Let's sing this last song and ask the Lord to do that work in our hearts.